friends both here in person in the warmth of this beautifully decorated sanctuary are uh, taking in our service. Uh, those of us at a distance, we have friends all the way from overseas, uh, California, Texas, North Bay, wherever you are today and you're taking this in, I just pray that God would speak to you in the final of Jesus' seven letters to the churches in the book of Revelation. As we reach to the church of Laodicea, it's always, uh, it's often the one that pastors use, uh, it, it, to close the deal, to apply an extra measure of guilt. And, uh, and today, you know, because it, it lends itself to that. Let's be honest. It is, uh, it is a letter with no commendation in it, just, just correction. So, uh, it's Jesus seemingly taking one of his churches, uh, to the woodshed to discipline them. But there's a reason for that, as we'll see. As we've gone through these seven letters, we've seen very different churches, but churches that we can all relate to. Every one of these situations have application to the churches of Jesus today. And I believe that's why before the canon of Scripture was closed, God gave us the incredible book of Revelation. Not only is it prophetic, and not only is it apocalyptic, looking forward to the last days, and, the, and encouraging us, no matter what we suffer in this life, that God wins in the end. It is the encouragement of the blessed hope. But these pastoral letters that Jesus writes to his churches, they're precious to us. And they have been precious and, uh, and have been teaching God's people for almost 2,000 years. As we reflect on the churches we've looked at so far, we began in Ephesus, the seemingly powerhouse church who held on to the truth of God's Word, but their hearts had grown cold. They had lost their first love. And then we went up the road to uh, to Smyrna, <clears throat> and this is a church that Jesus had great uh, encouragement for because they were suffering for the cause of Christ. They were a suffering church. We went to the ancient capital of Pergamum and the beautiful Acropolis and all of the great temples, both to, to false gods, but also to human emperors. And Jesus said, I know where you're ministering, uh, where Satan has his throne. But they were a church that though one of them, the faithful Antipas, had, had been martyred and given his life for his faith, the many in the church were willing to compromise, to, uh, to, to go along in order to get along. Well, then we started to head south and we, and we, we headed down the road to Thyatira who, who were, uh, something strange was going on in that church. There was a, a lady that claimed to be a prophet, but it seems that she was leading, uh, the group of the, in the church into, into false teaching and sexual immorality. It was like a polluted church. And then we went to Sardis, an amazing city to visit, but a church that was coasting on its past successes. They had had a golden age and everybody thought they were still there, but Jesus knew the truth that spiritually they were as good as dead. Oh, and then finally we went to the little town of Philadelphia, the town of brotherly love. And this church looked down on, no doubt, by all these bigger churches in these bigger cities, this small town church Jesus had nothing but praise for he says, yes, you're little, yes, you're small, and yes, you're weak, but you've learned the truth that my strength is made perfect in your weakness. <laughs> he says, I have placed an open door in front of you that nobody can close. How encouraging and challenging all of these messages have been. 
And now we reach Laodicea. And Jesus passes judgment on them. He is the perfect judge because unlike human judges, Jesus knows all of the facts. In fact, 1 Peter chapter 4, speaking of the judgment of God upon His body, the church. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? There's no hope for them. They will stand one day before the righteous judge. Every knee will Every knee will bend, every head will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. But for those who scoffed at the good news and rejected the offer of grace and salvation, there will come a time where it is too late and sentence will be passed. Judgment is going to act as bookends today. When we hear this passage, it almost sends a a cold shiver up our spine. Judgment begins with the church the family of God. And yet we know that the Lord searches our hearts and His desire, as we see in all of these letters, is not to condemn, but to encourage, not to pass sentence, but to give rewards. Each one of these letters, no matter how difficult the situation of the church is, Jesus makes a promise to them, a beautiful promise of a glorious reward. Because He is just and He is holy and He is true, but He is also loving and gracious. And our Lord judges in order to correct and grow us and mature us and make us the best churches and best believers that we can be. It's called many things, but as we come to today's final church, Laodicea, I call it Laodicea, the comfortable church. Oh, I remember years ago in a Christian magazine was called Leadership. And the best part of Leadership magazine, if anybody ever got hold of them, were the cartoons. Oh yeah, the articles were good, but these Christian cartoonists, they were able to get to the heart and see the humor in church life. I remember one of the cartoons that said, uh, and, and the first time in the history of this fractious church, overwhelmingly they voted unanimously to get rid of the hard pews and replace them. And And the picture was everybody were in recliners lined up and they were all kicked back and enjoying the message, snoozing through it. It was comfortable. And Laodicea, as we look at it, it seems that they are very comfortable with how things are going in the church, with how things are going in their spiritual lives. And Jesus is coming to cause discomfort to the comfortable. It's interesting, but that's what he's doing. Now let's look as we do each week at Jesus' description of Himself. They always hearken back to that glorious vision that John had of Jesus on the Isle of Patmos, but His description also speaks of the fact that He is qualified to examine, judge, and correct His beloved churches. We see that in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. If Jesus is going to pass judgment, He is the one to do it. 
He is the Amen, the so be it, the last word from God. His judgment is trusted because He is true and He is faithful and He's our Creator. He knows that we are dust. What is man that you are mindful of Him? The Son of Man that you care for Him. Jesus loves us. And because of that, He is going to examine and correct this church, this very comfortable church in Laodicea. As we do each week, buckle in, let's go to Turkey and visit the site of ancient church in Laodicea. Laodicea today. Well, it's not called Laodicea anymore, as they rarely are. Uh, Very rarely do these uh, towns keep their ancient names. Smyrna was the exception until about 1923 when the uh, new Turkish government changed the name from Smyrna to Izmir, which is similar, close to the ear. But Laodicea, the city ceased to exist about the year 605. 605, as we've seen the last few weeks, we've been going down this road, we've seen that this was earthquake country and that these towns were damaged again and again. Philadelphia, the people lived in tents for years because of the aftershocks of the great earthquakes. These cities were destroyed and Rome sent hundreds of millions in today's money to rebuild the cities of Asia Minor and Phrygia because of these devastating earthquakes. There was a major earthquake in Laodicea about the time Jesus would have been 20 years old during the reign of Caesar Tiberius. There was another enormous one uh, during the time of the apostles, about 60, shortly after Paul or Peter would have been martyred in Rome. Uh, It was uh, during the reign, or right near it, during the reign of Claudius and so forth. Uh, So Laodicea ceased to exist as a city in about 600 but what they did, the people were still there. It just was just not worth rebuilding one more time. So they moved a little further east toward the city of Colossae down the road, and they rebuilt in land that rarely was damaged by earthquakes. And the city today is called Denizli. And Denizli is a beautiful city. The city itself is almost the size of Edmonton almost as big as Edmonton. It's a a wonderful city to visit. Uh, Tourism, good food, beautiful area because it's in this gorgeous river valley. As we have turned on the road, let's let's look at our map as we do each week. We have been going down in that big triangle, starting in Ephesus, all the way up to Pergamon, then down the major highway, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Well, now we're at Laodicea, and you'll notice Laodicea is on the crossroads. Look at that. It is on the major road to the interior of Anatolia, modern Turkey, all the way to the ancient Near East, all the way to the province of Syria and beyond. And it also connects to Ephesus, the major ports in Miletus, and it goes north through all that rich farmland and, and, and textile area. It is the crossroads. And because of that, it became, believe it or not, the center for banking. It was the banking powerhouse of this region of the Roman Empire. And because of that, you know the guys, they they work with other people's money? A lot of it sticks to them, doesn't it? And they become very wealthy. So Laodicea was an incredibly wealthy city for its size. They had amenities and luxuries far beyond what a city their size should have been able to 
to afford. As I said, it's in this beautiful Lycus River Valley with tall hills on one side and tall mountains on the other. Let's look at something about the situation of Laodicea. Look at this. The, the, the top picture, believe it or not, that's a natural formation. Those are the thermal hot springs right across, directly across the river valley to the north at the ancient city of Hierapolis. Now, Hierapolis, Laodicea, and Colossae were like sister churches. When uh, when Paul would write a letter, like the letter to Colossians, he'd say, read it in Laodicea, read it in the other churches. Uh, he very possibly wrote the letter to the Ephesians in uh, Laodicea. It was an important Christian center in the early days. But Hierapolis across the, across the valley uh, where uh, the apostle Philip was martyred, it has these incredible naturally occurring hot springs which are full of minerals and they form solid rock travertine waterfalls. And, and, and you look across the valley on a sunny day and it's like blazing white. In the middle of summer, it looks like a giant ski hill. And it's been like that since ancient times. It's known for its hot water, its thermal baths. Cleopatra came all the way from Egypt just to bathe in the thermal baths at Hierapolis. Uh, it had like poison gas coming up from underground, so they thought it was the gates of hell. And there was the temple to Pluto, the, 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 the god of the underworld in Hierapolis. Well, you look north from Laodicea, and it's right between the hot water of Hierapolis, and you look south from town, and you have the tall mountains clad in snow year-round. Mount Selbocus, Mount Cadmus are right above it, and they have beautiful cold snow. Now, people have conjectured what Jesus is talking about, this lukewarm water, and they've said, well, maybe the water was piped from the hot springs and it cooled off. That never happened. There were never any... uh aqueducts built across the valley because the valley in the first century was a giant lake. You couldn't pump water across it. Laodicea always got its water from the mountains, the beautiful cold mountain springs. But they brought the water to them in aqueducts, as you see the ruins of the aqueduct. And by the time it got to town, it was putrid. It was lukewarm. It was tepid. And uh, they even would use this tepid, lukewarm water from the aqueduct medically to induce vomiting. Not great, hey? Sort of like Troshu in the spring when we get between mud and chlorine and, oh man, we hit that time of year when the, the rivers melted and, you know, our water tastes a little off. We are so blessed to have clean, potable water these days compared to the ancient world. But I think that really lends its imagery. The hot waters to the north, the cold waters uh, to the south in the mountains, between hot and cold, and in the middle you have the lukewarm water of Laodicea. The town itself has a beautiful name, and they pronounce it correctly in Turkey, not like we do. It was named by uh, the Seleucid Greek general under Alexander, uh, Antiochus II. He named it after his wife, and she had the beautiful name uh, Laodike, Laodike. And so they named the city Laodikia after his beloved wife, Laodike. And uh, so the town and the Turks, they still call it Laodikia. And we call it Laodicea. And they say, well, they, they had to teach their guides to mispronounce the town so we would understand 
what they were talking about. And they try hard to mispronounce it just like we do. Uh, I'll call it Laodicea because that's what we all grew up calling it, though they called it Laodicea. It's a pretty name when they say it. Well, Laodicea or Laodicea there, it, as I said, it was a rich town. Look at some of the ruins today. Because the city moved, as we've seen each week, if the city stays there, there's nothing to see because the modern town's on top of it. But moving to Denizli to the east, the ancient city is all there and it's been excavated for years and more and more is coming to light every day. There are blocks and blocks and giant streets and theaters. It's a whole Roman city that's being uncovered even today. It's still being uncovered. It's a sprawling city. It was a rich city. And part of that, as you look at the next slide, they've found hospitals in, in uh, Laodicea. And these hospitals specialized in ophthalmology. That's the medicine of the eye, eye care. And one of the reasons is that they produced the earliest and best medicine for the eyes in Laodicea. They're from the area of the Roman Empire called, they're on the edge of Phrygia, and the medicine was called Phrygian powder. It had a lot of different plants and materials in it, but it was primarily made from zinc, which naturally occurs in Laodicea area. Zinc and alum were the natural ingredients, and they would apply it not to the eye. When Jesus says, give your eyes salve, what they would do and we know for a fact because there is Laodicean medicine in that picture. In 1974, off the coast of Italy, a jam-packed merchant ship was discovered underwater. And amazingly, it had a medical chest in it full of these little metal pill containers that were sealed shut and still had their medicine inside of them. Opening them up, look at that. It looks like, what is that, a chunk of coal or something? Well, that's the topmost of a stack of five tablets. They're about the size. Remember, did anybody remember those Alka-Seltzer tablets, those white tablets? About exactly that size, but black. They're black because they're zinc primarily. And what they would do for the eyes, they would melt that tablet with beeswax and make a salve. They wouldn't stick it on the eyeball. That's gross. Ugh. What they would do, they would put it on the eyelid and all around, and it would cure styes, parasites. Even today, zinc is used primarily uh, by dermatologists. And uh, here's, here's something that I always get a kick out of. You know, we look at the Egyptian pharaohs, and we often see those great big black eye makeup, you know? It looks like American football players with eye black under it. It's because it was. Those aren't cosmetics. Those were Phrygian powder eye applications the pharaohs would use to keep their eyesight healthy and free of parasites. It was beautifully cosmetic, but it was medicinal as well. And these guys were famous for it. Oh, the hills of Laodicea, the, the Roman historians say they were, they were populated by a special breed only found there of raven black sheep. That's what the ancient writers called them, raven black sheep. And just as we saw a, a couple of weeks ago, one of the cities produced the outer garment for the Roman world to wear, what we call the toga. Well, that was always over your inner garment, your tunic. All of the wealthy people wanted Laodicean tunics made of these beautiful black sheep's wool. They loved them. They were so proud of their black tunic clothing. And they made the black hooded cloaks that the Romans would wear 
in inclement weather. Well, as I mentioned, it's a rich town. Here's pictures of one of the two theaters. Uh, this is the Western Theater. There's a Northern Theater as well. And uh, they're incredible. This one seats about 12,000 people. The other one about 8,000 people. Normally you multiply the theater by about 10 to get the active population of the, of the town itself. But this town had more theaters than it had people. And not only did it have theaters, but it had enormous mansions in it. One of the one of the blocks of ruins that we wandered through, the whole city block was a single house, a single mansion, the ancient insula style with a central courtyard. And the next picture shows it even had its own church inside of it. It began life, that was probably a pagan sanctuary, but very quickly the Christians, we found this was an enormously rich Christian household with its own private chapel inside of it. It's incredible. For sports, they had one of the many great Roman stadiums, these long, narrow... Uh, the stadium in Laodicea looks like a ditch in the ground. And uh, you see this long hole in the ground. I'm sitting on one of the ancient stairs, uh, or the seats rather, and this one is uh, just down the road from the, uh, the the city of Aphrodisias. Aphrodisias has the largest Roman stadium in the world, uh, and the next picture shows what it looks like. That one is incredible. It's it's completely intact. Even the seats have numbers and and games on them, including backgammon for the fans to play between races, athletic events, and blood sports, including fighting animals to the death, putting Christians to death, and gladiator sports. All took place in these stadiums at Laodicea and Aphrodisias. Incredibly rich people. Uh, they, the stadiums, this one is the largest in the ancient world, 300 meters long. It was an incredible stadium to sit in and see today. Well, the final thing that we visited in Laodicea was a church. And I found this very encouraging. These are the ruins of a large uh, Christian cathedral that was destroyed by that final earthquake in 600. It tells me that the faith continued and that Laodicea continued to be a Christian center. Not only that, but when the early church was meeting together with count, with leaders, bishops, and so forth, deciding on everything from what is orthodox theology to which books belong in the Bible, well, they met here in Laodicea. And they, the, uh, the, 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 the 60, 59 or 60 major resolutions they passed at this location, uh, they were all approved by the major, uh, church council at Chalcedon, uh, about a hundred, about a hundred years later. It's interesting though, the one that is most famous being passed right here at this church was the books of the Bible. They finally agreed on which books, Old and New Testament. Because there were a lot of books in addition to the ones we have that were a blessing to Christians to read, but they just didn't pass muster. They weren't uh, written, especially the New Testament, by witnesses of the risen Lord or somebody who worked with an apostle, Mark, for instance, with Peter and so forth. The one that's missing, though, (laughs) the one book that's missing in that list that they approved, it later was approved many other places, is the book of Revelation. Could it be that Laodicea, who takes such criticism from Jesus, didn't want that book to be 
prominent? I don't know. It's just my thoughts. But that is Laodicea today. Incredible ruins to visit. But when Jesus dealt with the church, rich, and powerful, comfortable, influential, though they were, Jesus had criticism. We come now to no commendation, no, no approval of their deeds. When He gets to their deeds, He has nothing positive to say about them. He moves right to corrections and accusations. And the first accusation we see of Laodicea is that they are lukewarm. Something that tepid, gross water, that feel in your mouth that the people in these ancient cities, especially in Laodicea, between hot and cold, would be very familiar with. Jesus begins in verse 15, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. He's going to reject them, cast them away from him. He wishes they were hot and restorative or cold or refreshing or even hot and on fire spiritually. Cold people can have a change of heart overnight. But comfortable, lukewarm people, they don't see a need for change. When we're like that, we think we're just fine. We don't need any help. When the pastor preaches a, a message that's very to the point, very convicting, we agree but it's for somebody else we think of, not for me. That's how I approach it. I came across recently a reading about this because in reflecting on this this past week, when Jesus says tepid or lukewarm, I think it means a Christian who's room temperature. For the years I worked in the funeral industry, when we talked about a person being room temperature, we knew what that meant. It meant they're dead. They're no longer hot. There's no energy in them. They're not cold they become just like their environment. In this reading I came across, looking at room temperature Christians, I, it said this, and it speaks what Jesus is talking about. People who have grown comfortable as Christians, but they don't stand out. They're no different than their surroundings. It says, when we're lukewarm, we ride the fence of public opinion. We want to be religious, but not zealous. We speak of God, but we do not stand for God. We may go to church, but have little compulsion to do our part to help the church move forward for God. We may have a desire to be good, but little desire to be godly. We want to be happy, but not necessarily holy. We want things to be right, but are not overly concerned with being righteous. We do not want souls to be lost, but we do little to see souls saved. We hear the preaching of the Word of God, but rarely apply the message to our own lives. We have many personal preferences, but few personal convictions. We bow to the will of popular pressure rather than submitting to the will of God. We're more concerned with cultural and political correctness than we are with scriptural correctness. We're looking for acceptance from others instead of acceptance by the Lord. We're much more comfortable being conformed than being transformed. We see the needs of others, but do not see our own spiritual needs. We're lethargic, satisfied, comfortable, complacent. We are content to be the same temperature as whomever we are around. Not too hot, not too cold. If we're in church, we may be a little warmer. Out in the world, a little cooler. 
We don't want to be uncomfortable or to make others uncomfortable. We are room temperature. We are lukewarm. Boy, some of that really hits home to us. Jesus said, not only are you lukewarm, you don't stand out. You're just like your surroundings. He said, but you're deluded. He says, you're self-satisfied. You're self-deceived. I love that picture. How's that little cat see itself? It sees itself as a lion. Sometimes that's how the church in Laodicea and we are today as individuals and as churches. We think we are right where we need to be. We are on track. We're self-satisfied, but we're also self-deceived. And self-deception really is some of the most difficult deception to overcome in life. Speaking of their self-deception, Jesus says in verse 17, You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. You see how their attitude, their smugness, was exactly like the city they lived in. And reading that, I think, am I just a Canadian? Are my attitudes just a Western Canadian, ornery Albertan, small town rather than big city attitudes? Do I just become just like my surroundings? Or do I have convictions based on the Word of God? Are we room temperature or are we different? Boy, in the West, where the poorest among us are rich in much of the world, it's very easy for us to be complacent because we don't need anything. We might be upset because all this free money was given out this past week and it was given to others, but not me. Do you need it? Well, no, but free money's free money. You know, I, I, I want something. It's about me. But no, we're not as rich as we think we are. We may be in spiritual poverty. And that's what Jesus is saying, these hard words to wake up this church that He loves, to be a witness for Him and the truth because He is the truth, the Amen, the Word of God. And He wants it to be communicated clearly to the people of Laodicea. It's hard. It's hard not to be poor and dependent on God to have physical, earthly resources. The Scripture says riches are a challenge for Christians, not a blessing. They're more often a hindrance than a blessing. And we say, is there any hope for us then in the material West that we live in? I believe there is. Scripture says riches are just a tool to be used. It's how we use them. For instance, 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 17. Paul tells Timothy, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share in this way, they'll lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. That's what we want to do, to be rich in good deeds and showing Jesus' love to those who need to 
experience it. So Jesus not only condemns their attitudes, but He offers correction. In fact, He uses an interesting phrase. He offers them His wisdom and counsel. The counsel of Christ. Can you imagine if Jesus was here today in the flesh with you as He walked so long ago? He said, I just want to be your advisor. I want to be your coach, your life coach, your counselor. Well, you and I both know that He wants to be that anyway through His Word and by His Spirit applying His Word to our hearts. But here's what Jesus says. I want to be your counselor. Revelation chapter 3, verse 18. He says, I counsel. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Because he says spiritually you're in poverty and you're naked and you're blind. All of those things that they were proud that they had overcome as individuals and as a city, Jesus said, let's have some spiritual realities instead. How do you get that refined gold from the Lord? The fire He's talking about is the fire of suffering and persecution. Laodicea, unlike Smyrna and the other churches, had not experienced persecution for their faith. And why would they? They were no different than anyone around them. They may have called themselves Christians, but it didn't make any difference in how they lived their lives. Jesus says, I prescribe a little persecution, a little suffering, to help you bring your attitudes and your into perspective the perspective that God has. And the white clothes rather than their beloved black tunics, well, we know those speak of, those speak of holiness. In Revelation chapter 19, the wonderful passage speaking of the marriage supper of the Lamb, it says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Jesus says, acts of love and service, that will clothe you with the white you need to wear to be truly clothed spiritually. And finally, the blindness. Reflecting on that, I think He says you need to grow up. You need to mature. You need to truly come to a, a mature Christian understanding both of God, yourself, the world around you. And again, we go to Peter today. He has provided much of the, much of the understanding that we need. In 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, Peter speaks of, Peter speaks of growing up in our faith and how it provides clear vision for us. Peter writes, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith we're saved by faith, God's grace through faith, but that's only the beginning. Your sinner's prayer is only the beginning. You need to grow from there. That's the first step, not the end. For every, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and a brotherly kindness, love. 
For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you, this is Laodicea, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. That clears it up beautifully. (laughs) We forget who we are, and we're blind, and we're unproductive, and we're just inert and tepid, room temperature and lukewarm. God wants to restore the power. He wants to turn the, the fire on under the kettle once again and get the power back in us through His Word and by His Spirit to revive us and bring us back to who we should be in Christ. And Jesus wonderfully gives them His counsel and He holds out His hand and He gives them an invitation. The invitation. Jesus is calling. That passage that we always use as we share the Gospel, I used it this past week at Kids Club, sharing the salvation message. Jesus stands at the door of our heart and knocks. But the original context isn't for unbelievers. It's for believers who have gone cold and tepid. God's inviting you to come back, to re-engage, to turn the fire on once again under the kettle and read your Bible and pray. Be revived. Jesus says, as He invites us in verses 19 and 20, those whom I love, and He loves the church in Laodicea, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. I love that. In the original language, behold, here I stand, it's very strong. Jesus is saying, here I take my stand. I'm not giving up on Laodicea. I'm right here. I'm right at hand. I'm calling out to you. Do you hear my voice? Do you hear me knocking at the door of your heart? Come home. Come back. Be who you were meant to be. Don't let your salvation end with the sinner's prayer, that prayer of faith. Add to it growing up in Jesus, becoming more like Him, becoming a disciple. Jesus says it's not always easy. I have to get your attention. But as a loving parent, we discipline. Oh, it always hurts me to see children with no correction in their life, no guidance, no parent who loves them enough to discipline them or correct them. And you see it in a grocery store or someplace, the little one's out of control and your your uh, parental correction muscles start to twitch. You know, you, you put it away. That's not my child. I can't correct you. I hope somebody loves them enough to take them in hand because nothing's more wonderful than a parent who loves you enough as a child to correct you. Oh, it's painful sometime for a bit, but oh, it's important to have that. Hebrews chapter 12, that wonderful chapter that talks about God If you experience discipline, it shows that you're a child of God. It concludes with this. Verse 10, it says, Our parents disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in His holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, 
it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. I'm thankful that Jesus loved Laodicea enough to discipline them and to correct them and bring a little a little suffering in their lives to get their attention and cause them to be less comfortable with their surroundings. Repentance is a change of life, a change of mind, a change of direction. I find the themes of Jesus' letters to these seven churches. Later, as the Apostle John returned to the mainland and took up his ministry after being gone for many years into exile, his letter, his pastoral letters of 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, I see Jesus teaching to these churches again and again. And one of them is his call to earnestly repent. In 1st John chapter 1, beginning in verse 8, Jesus said, or John writes rather, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just. will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. This could be written to the church in Laodicea, but it's written to you and I, to us as well. And Jesus closes these amazing letters as He always does with a promise. The promise is that we will reign with Christ. Those who we think of as no account, the little church in Philadelphia, the compromised Christians, the polluted church, the suffering church, the legalistic, hard-hearted church. In God's hands, He makes something wonderful. And in the future, He says, just as He finishing the work that God gave him to do, sat down at the right hand of his Father. He said, one day you, believer, will reign on high with me. Not just serve, not just worship, but reign. We have a hard time fully understanding this, but that's Jesus' promise. He closes the letter by saying, to him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I overcame and sat down with my Father on His throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We need to remember that. In fact, remember in Corinth, one of the things that just flabbergasted the Apostle Paul with this rambunctious, off-track church. They never ceased to surprise him with, what wrong things they could get up with. They could fight about good things and they could be very comfortable with bad things. I like the Corinthian church. They remind me a lot of of myself sometime, but God didn't give up on them. The Apostle Paul heard that when they had a disagreement, they would take it to the pagan courts for justice. And this thought of us one day reigning with the Lord And rather than human wisdom and justice, Paul says, as a Christian, you have access to the wisdom of God, the Word of God. You have the Spirit of God and discernment. And he reflects on that as he writes them a corrective note. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says, if any of you has a dispute with one another or another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge 
angels, how much more the things of this life. What a way to close on. We one day will judge angels. Angels who fell from their place, never repenting. And we, Adam's fallen race, through the grace of God, adopted into the very family of God, we will stand as judgment against those. Are we not competent then to make wise decisions in our daily lives? Well, Laodicea hadn't been, but after getting this letter, I believe they did. I believe they became a force. They really show up in the pages of church history. I'm always an optimist. I trust that receiving a letter from Jesus, putting His finger on right what their problems were, that all of these seven churches made changes, the changes that the Lord wanted them to be. And I often wonder in closing, if Jesus wrote a letter to the church in Troshu, Troshuians, whatever we're called. I don't even know what we call ourselves. Troshi? No, I'm not. I don't know. I'm not even going to say some of these things because I just heard what I was saying and it sounded pretty bad. But (laughs) what would our letter be like? I know your deeds. You're this. You're that. I commend you for this. But I have this against you. And if you overcome, here's my promise for you. Friends, search it out in God's Word and let His Spirit apply it to our hearts. For He who has ears, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You for Jesus' love. Lord, we can easily see Jesus' love as He takes the little kids on His lap and says, let them have a blessing. Don't keep them from Me. We see His love as He takes a little boy's lunch and feeds a hungry multitude. We see His love with tears in His eyes. He calls Lazarus to come out of the grave. We see the full extent of His love as He willingly stretched out His arms and died on the cross in our place. But Lord, when we see Jesus, the risen Lord in glory, writing letters to these churches, some feeling they were right on track, others struggling, Lord, He shows His love because God only corrects and disciplines His children. Lord, I thank You that the children of the family of God have such a caring Heavenly Father. Lord, may we hear what the Spirit says to the church today and to us individually. And Lord, may we allow that Spirit to empower us, to turn up the heat in our lives, to revive us, and make the changes that need to be made that we would be the witness and the hands and feet of love and the voice of the good news that our community needs us to be. Father, this is our prayer. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you and keep you.